You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit, Anthroposophy, Psychosophy, and Pneumatosophy. The twelve lectures uh, that will be in, in this were given in Berlin. The first set on Anthroposophy from October 23rd to the 27th of 1909. The set on Psychosophy, November 1st through the 4th, 1910. And the Pneumatosophy section... Uh, December, December 12th to the 16th, 1911. This is uh, translated by Marjorie Spock, who I'll say uh, uh, recently passed over the threshold. 103 years old. <clears throat> First lecture. Lecture 1, The Human Being and the Senses, given on October 23rd, 1909. During recent years here in Berlin, and wherever the Theosophical Society has been established. We have heard much about the whole range of Theosophy, insights drawn, so to speak, from the highest regions of clairvoyant research. This has made it inevitable, even essential, that something be done to provide a basis for our spiritual movement that is both serious and deserving of respect. This general meeting, which brings our dear members together to celebrate seven years of the German section's existence, is a suitable occasion to contribute further to a firmer foundation and greater order for this movement. I will try to do this in the four lectures on anthroposophy scheduled for the next few days. Footnote 1. These lectures were given for members on the occasion of the 8th General Assembly of the German section of the Theosophical Society. Rudolf Steiner had opened the general meeting saying, On this occasion it may be taken for granted that you have a feeling for what is called a cyclic evolution of events, the completion of the first seven-year epoch. It also marked a move toward a more Western mode of thinking. The task of the West is to develop the spirit of synthesis. From Günther Wachsmuth, The Life and Work of Rudolf Steiner. End of footnote. The lectures at Kassel on the Gospel of John, those in Dusseldorf on the Hierarchies, the Basel lectures on the Gospel of Luke, and the Munich cycle on the teachings of Eastern Theosophy, all provided an opportunity to climb to noble heights in spiritual research and bring back spiritual truths that are not easily accessible. It has always been at least a part of our concern in the Theosophical movement to ascend to two such high peaks of human spiritual knowledge. When we cultivate a feeling for the so-called cycle of cosmic events, we are certainly justified in seeing something of a deeper nature in them. During our first general meeting, when we were establishing the German section, before an audience, few of whom were theosophists, I delivered lectures that were referred to then as an historic chapter of anthroposophy. Footnote. The first general meeting took place October 20th, 1902, the lectures he refers to were given to the circle of the Commenden and were called From Zarathustra to Nietzsche, The History of Human Evolution in Relation to the Ancient East and to the Present, or Anthroposophy. End of footnote. <clears throat> now, seven years later, we seem to have completed a cycle, and it is appropriate to speak more comprehensively about the meaning of the term Anthroposophy. An analogy may help clarify its meaning. When we wish to examine a region, we go from place to place, looking at the arrangement of villages, woods, meadows, roads, and so on. What we see at any given place or moment at ground level is always just a small, a very small portion of the whole area. But we can also climb a mountain and survey the entire landscape from the peak. Ordinary sight will not then distinguish the details, but the view will provide an overview of the whole. This analogy illustrates the relationship between theosophy and what we ordinarily think of as knowledge or science. Ordinary cognition moves from detail to detail through the world of fact. 
Theosophy, on the other hand, ascends a high peak, and the horizon is thereby enlarged. After climbing that peak, however, special methods must be used to make out the details of what lies below. These methods have been described many times, for example, in my book titled How to Know Higher Worlds. There I show how it is possible to reach that ideal peak without sacrificing the capacity to perceive detail. But there is also a third possibility, which we may infer from our analogy. We may climb only part of the way, stopping, for example, at the halfway point. At ground level, we see only detail with no overview. We look at the heights above us from beneath. When we reach the peak, conversely, there is nothing above us but the heavens, and everything visible lies below. But at the midpoint of ascent, there is something beneath us and above us, and we can compare the two perspectives. Every analogy, of course, leaves something to be desired. This one was intended only to illustrate the distinction between theosophy and anthroposophy. Theosophy stands on the peak, anthroposophy at the halfway point, looking both up and down, or excuse me, looking both down and up. The only difference is in the place from which the scene is viewed. This analogy, however, cannot be stretched to cover the following. Taking the theosophical path requires rising above the level of the usual human way of seeing things, rising from the lower to the higher self and attaining the capacity to perceive with the organs of that higher self. <clears throat> the peak from which theosophy is able to perceive is above us, whereas ordinary cognition lies below and we ourselves are halfway between the worlds of nature and spirit. What is above us extends into us, for we are suffused and filled with spirit. We can perceive the spirit there, above, but we do not look from the peak of the spirit, but from a place over which the peak towers. We also see beneath us what is merely nature, for it projects into us from below. Theosophy is vulnerable to the danger of overflying the human level when those methods described, for example, in How to Know Higher Worlds, are not practiced, in which case it becomes impossible for us to gain sufficient knowledge. The danger with theosophy is that it cannot perceive the reality at its feet. Obviously, this does not mean that such a possibility must be lost if the appropriate methods are used for developing the organs of perception for the higher self. In other words, theosophy is what we investigate when the divine within us speaks. Essentially, the correct meaning of theosophy is the allowing of the God within us to speak. What it tells you about the world is theosophy. Anthroposophy, for its part, may be characterized as the wisdom spoken by us as human beings when we are between God and nature, and allow the human being in us to speak of what is shining into us from above and of what is projecting into us from below. Anthroposophy is the wisdom that human beings speak. This wisdom can serve as an important key to and support in the whole realm of theosophy. After we have absorbed theosophy for a while, we can hardly do better than rally to the achievement of such firm support by seeking the wisdom that anthroposophy can provide. Therefore, I will make sure that a brief sketch of the nature of anthroposophy is made available as soon as possible after these lectures. Footnote, uh, he, he wrote Anthroposophy a Fragment, which is also on this website. End of footnote. There is a broad range of historical documentation for what I am saying, there is no need to look very far for it. There is, for example, a science generally known as anthropology, about which you can find out through all sorts of popular literature. As ordinarily practiced today, anthropology includes not only the human being, but also, when properly understood, everything related to the human being, everything that people can experience in nature and what is necessary for understanding the human being. The starting point of this science of anthropology is an observation of earthly things. It is completely down on earth and moves from detail to detail. 
It observes what is human through the senses with the help of the microscope. Anthropology, which is widely regarded these days as the only valid science of the human being, takes its standpoint at a level below truly human capacities. In its investigations it does not use all the human capacities for research. Now contrast anthropology, which remains stuck at the ground level and cannot work out any of the answers to the burning questions of existence, with what theosophy offers. Theosophy climbs to the loftiest heights to find the answers to the most pressing questions of existence. You will find, however, that those who are too impatient to explore theosophy gradually, those who have not accompanied us step by step in what we have presented over the past few years, have remained stuck at the level of anthropology and consider theosophy a structure of empty air without any basis whatsoever. They cannot see how the soul ascends stage by stage from incarnation to incarnation, and they cannot rise to an overview of the goal of human and cosmic evolution. Anthropology, therefore, may be seen as standing on the lowest rung of the ladder and theosophy on the uppermost level, where the cognitive capacity fades away for many people. An historical example of what becomes of theosophy when it tries to climb to the peak but cannot apply the methods described in How to Know Higher Worlds is that of the German theosophist Zolger, who lived from 1780 to 1819. Footnote Karl Wilhelm Ferdinand Zolger, who published Philosophical Talks 1817. End of footnote. From a theoretical standpoint, his views are thoroughly theosophical. But what are the methods Zolger uses to reach the greatest heights? He uses the concepts of philosophy, drained and desiccated products of human thinking. He is like a climber who ascends a peak to look at the view but forgets to take his binoculars along. Thus he cannot see the details of the scene below. The binoculars in this case are of a spiritual nature, that is, imagination, inspiration, and intuition. Footnote, Rudolf uses the terms imagination, inspiration, and intuition in an extraordinary sense, as will be seen, and they are therefore italicized throughout the text. What we ordinarily call imagination, for example, could be referred to instead as mental picturing or fantasy. His use of the terms refers to stages of spiritual development as described in the third lecture of Pneumatosophy in this volume. See also Rudolf Steiner titled The Stages of Higher Knowledge. End of footnote. Zolger tries to climb the peak inadequately equipped in his methods. Over the centuries, it has been felt for a long time that human capacities were growing more and more inadequate for ascending to the peak. People felt and acknowledged this throughout the Middle Ages. It has been felt recently as well, even though the, that fact is not readily acknowledged. There had been a feeling for a long time that at one time human capacities were enough to reach the peak and that accounts of what was perceived there could be offered as an older theosophy had actually done. Yes, indeed, at one time there was such a theosophy. The time came, however, when the revelations, once attainable on the peak, had to end. Such revelations were to be protected from being received through ordinary cognition. Thus an earlier theosophy became theology, which regarded revelation as finished. Theology, therefore, stands next to anthropology, which simply goes from peak to peak. Sorry, let me read that again. Theology, therefore, stands next to anthropology, which simply goes from detail to detail with ordinary cognition. Theology wants to climb to the peak and learn from what may be seen at such heights, but it too again relies only on what can be learned through ordinary human means. <clears throat> In this case, historical tradition, what was once revealed, and not what ought to be revealed again and again to the human soul working upward. Anthropology and theology faced each other all through the Middle Ages, without one rejecting the other. It is still this way, but with a difference. Contemporary anthropology generally snubs theology by denying it any scientific basis. Yet when, instead of stopping at details, you climb to the midway point I described, 
you see that the relationship between anthroposophy and theosophy compares to that of anthropology and theology during the Middle Ages. In modern intellectual life, attempts were also made to substantiate anthroposophy, but again with completely inadequate methodology, namely with abstract, dried-up philosophical concepts. To comprehend the nature of the problem requires an understanding of what philosophy is, which is possible only for theosophers, not philosophers. What is philosophy? To answer this question, we have to trace the historical development of philosophy. For example, in ancient times there were mystery schools where the higher spiritual life was nurtured. Pupils there could be guided to spiritual vision through the development of their capacities. Ephesus, where the mysteries of Diana were explored, was such a place where pupils looked into the spiritual worlds. Whatever was learned and could be publicly disclosed was communicated accordingly. Those who took in such communications regarded them as perceived in the mysteries and offered as a gift. Among such listeners were those who were aware that they had been told deep secrets learned in the mysteries. The great sage Heraclitus was such an individual who came to know secrets of the mystery of Ephesus, especially facts ascertained through clairvoyance. Footnote Heraclitus from 540 approximately to 480 B.C., Greek philosopher who taught that all of reality is a constant is in a constant state of dynamic equilibrium, that opposites always have an underlying connection, and that all is manifestation of the Logos. Plato later interpreted his teachings as a doctrine of constant flow or flux. Only fragments of Heraclitus' sayings remain. Rudolf Steiner discusses Heraclitus in Christianity as mystical fact and riddles of philosophy. End of footnote. What was communicated to him in this way, and what he owed to his own partial initiation, he proclaimed in a form suited to ordinary understanding. Therefore, anyone who reads the teachings of Heraclitus, uh, the obscure, sees a deeper element underlying them, so that the direct experience of higher worlds can still be seen shining through. Heraclitus's followers could no longer understand that his communications derived from immediate experience of higher worlds, so they became involved in intellectual speculation. They believed in their merely philosophical mentality that they were uncovering errors in Heraclitus and busied themselves tinkering around trying to correct them. Concepts continued to be fabricated and passed from generation to generation. The remnants of philosophy that have come down to us are nothing more than an inheritance of ancient teachings with all the life sucked out of them and squeezed dry to the point where skeletons of concepts are all that have survived. Philosophers themselves are not aware of the concept's source. Philosophies are mere abstractions, inheritances from an ancient wisdom now reduced to empty concepts. Philosophers are unable to conceive anything for themselves, for that they would have to make an expedition into higher worlds. Philosophies of this kind and their dried-up concepts were all that was available to nineteenth-century philosophers when they tackled what may be termed anthroposophy. That term was used once when Robert Zimmerman wrote a book by that title. Footnote C, The Anthroposophic Movement, a book by Rudolf Steiner, I believe. End of footnote. <laughs> but just as with Zolger and his Theosophy, Zimmermann was inadequately equipped for the task, thus his writings were fabricated from the driest, most abstract concepts. This completely dry, abstract conceptual specter, unsuited to its subject, was his view of anthroposophy. It is characteristic of the nineteenth century that whatever transcended individual outer experience or went beyond anthropology and wanted to be anthroposophy became just such a dry conceptual specter. Through supplying the methods to know the reality within spiritual life, theosophy must restore depth once more to the knowledge of humanity that can be called anthroposophy. Anthroposophy is spiritual insight into the world based unequivocally on the median, the human perspective, not the subhuman, which is the perspective of anthropology. 
Zolger's theosophy occupied a superhuman level, but it lacked content. Concepts conceived at that level fly too high above humankind. Since people up there cannot see anything of the world below, they spin webs of manufactured concepts. We are not interested in doing that. Our quest is for reality, and you will see that all reality of human life opens to it. You will still recognize the old friends, the old goals of our seeking, but illumined from a different viewpoint, looking both up and down. The human being is truly the most important subject for our consideration. When we examine the physical body, if we reflect on what we have learned through theosophy and examine it more closely, we become aware of how complicated it really is. To gain some sense of anthroposophy's true concern, remember that what we call the human physical body is in a sense a very ancient creation. We know that it came into existence in its initial seed state on ancient Saturn, changed on the ancient sun and moon, and transformed again on the earth. Footnote. The use of planetary names to describe stages of cosmic development was a theosophical convention of the time, used to describe the major stages of cosmic development. These terms do not refer directly to the physical celestial bodies of the same names or to their specific physical development. For a thorough discussion of these terms, see Rudolf Steiner in Outline of Esoteric Science, Chapter 4. End of footnote. <coughs> the ether body was incorporated into it on ancient sun. Again footnote. Steiner included this note for his book Theosophy. Quote, for a long time, after compiling this book, I also spoke of what is here termed ether body or life body as the body of formative forces. I believe that one could not do enough to try to prevent the identification of what I meant with the life force or vital force of an earlier stage of science. I agree in some respects with those who would deny the existence of any such force. That term was used in an attempt to explain the unique way of working that inorganic forces took on within a living organism. However, inorganic activity is actually no different inside an organism than it is outside in inorganic nature. Within an organism there is simply something additional present, something that is not inorganic, namely the formative activity of life, whose basis is the ether body or body of formative forces. Recognizing the existence of the ether body in no way impinges on the legitimate task of science, which is to trace the effects of forces observed in inorganic nature into the world of living organisms. Spiritual science, however, also finds it justified not to imagine these effects as altered by a particular vital force within an organism. A spiritual researcher speaks of an ether body at the point where an organism discloses something that a lifeless object cannot. Page 36, end of footnote. <coughs> the astral body was incorporated into the human body on ancient moon. Footnote. In Theosophy, Steiner explained his use of the term astral body. Quote, the human being can be differentiated into physical body, life body, astral body, and I, capital, with the term astral body designating the union of the soul body and the sentient soul. <clears throat> this term is common in older literature and is here freely applied to that aspect of the human being that lies beyond what is sense-perceptible. What is active in the astral body, to begin with, are our drives, desires, and passions, to the extent that we perceive them, as well as our sense-perceptions. Sense-perceptions come about through the soul-body, a member of our human constitution that comes to us from the outer world. Drives, desires, passions, and so on, originate in the sentient soul, to the extent that it is filled with forces by our inner self, before this inner self gives itself over to the spirit self. End quote, page 59, end of footnote. <clears throat> These aspects of human nature have gone through continual metamorphosis over the course of evolution. What we recognize today as the complex physical body, with the heart and kidneys, the eyes and ears and so on, is the product of a long evolution, during which all its members developed from a primal formative essence that was present on ancient Saturn. 
then millions of years passed, bringing further changes before it reached the stage of its present complexity and perfection. When you study any part of this body today, for example the heart or lungs, you cannot understand it if you do not have a deeper understanding of how these organs originated and developed. Obviously, nothing of the present form of the heart and lungs existed on ancient Saturn. They developed their present form only very gradually, one earlier, another later, and became incorporated into the physical body. One of these organs may be called the sun organ, because during the sun evolution it was incorporated and became perceptible. Another may be termed the moon organ, and so on. If we want to understand how this complex structure, the human physical body, really came to be and what it means today, we can get the concepts from the universe, from a study of the entire cosmos. This is a theosophical view of the human being. Now, how does the anthropological view differ? Anthropology views the heart and the stomach in isolation. They are studied separately, as though it didn't matter which was the newer and which the older organ. That aspect is ignored, and each organ is lined up and handled separately. Theosophy ascends to the ultimate heights and explains each individual aspect of the whole out of the spiritual. Anthropology stays at ground level and starts from the individual aspect. By this method, it has arrived at the greatest extreme, viewing individual cells as merely juxtaposed, as though it made no difference that a particular complex of cells originated during ancient moon evolution and another during ancient sun. The various cell complexes actually did come to be at very different times. You can list the superficial details, but you will not understand them if you fail to consider them from the spiritual viewpoint. Anthropology walks on the ground, whereas theosophy looks at things from the highest peak. <clears throat> Matters now become even more complicated. The human heart is one of the most ancient organs considered in its initial seed form. Its present appearance developed only during a later period. The germinal stage of the heart was dependent on the forces at work on the ancient sun. Evolution continued. During the first period of moon evolution, old moon united with the sun and the heart passed through another stage of development. Then came the great event of ancient sun's separation. The sun worked thereafter from outside the moon, causing the heart to go through a totally different evolution. From that time on, evolution proceeded with a sun part and a moon part, and we can understand the heart only if we can differentiate between the sun and moon parts. Then the sun reunited with the moon. But early in the earth's development the sun again separated out and worked with greater intensity on evolution from the outside. Then the moon separated from the earth, working on it from without and ushering in a new phase in the heart's long evolution. We see here shining into the human physical body many different forces from the most diverse sources. Belonging as it does to the oldest group of organs, the heart truly has a sun element, a moon element, a second sun element and moon element, and then, after the separation of the earth, the addition of an earth element. If all these elements of an organ, or those of the whole physical body, accord as they do with the harmony of the cosmos, a person is healthy. If one element outweighs another, for example, if the sun element in the heart overwhelms that of the moon, the heart becomes ill. You understand the illness when you know what caused the moon element to fall behind. All illnesses result from various elements becoming unbalanced or irregular, while restoration of health is found through restoring harmony among them. Speaking of such things is not enough. We must really understand this harmony and immerse ourselves in the wisdom of the world to be able to find the various elements working in a given organ. The physical body is indeed a tremendously complex structure, as you realize from our considerations so far. You can sense what real occult physiology and anatomy are, since they must consider all these factors and comprehend the human being from the entire cosmos. 
They speak of sun and moon elements in the heart, larynx, brain, and so on. Because all these elements actually work in human beings as they exist before us today, human beings are, so to speak, solidified, crystallized products of all the processes throughout Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth phases of evolution. In the human being there stands before us something in which all of these elements are solidified. Anthroposophy, for its part, begins when we do not look out into the universe, but look into human beings themselves as they are today and seek to understand the various human organs, the physical, etheric, and astral bodies, the sentient, intellectual, and consciousness souls. But in anthroposophy, we also have to begin at the bottom to ascend to the heights. For human beings, the sense-perceptible physical world is the bottom level, made up of everything our senses and sense-oriented intellects perceive. Theosophy begins from the whole cosmos and examines the cosmic connections with sense-perceptible physical phenomena, with outer manifestations. That is the theosophical approach. Anthroposophy must begin with the human being in studying the physical world. It must study what is of sense-physical nature in the human being. It must begin by studying the human being as a sense-being. That is the first step. Then we will have to go on to consider the human etheric body, and then the astral body, and the eye, that which is to be found in the human being itself. What must be of special interest to us in considering the sense world? The human being. The senses are the first aspect since they are the means we use to know the physical world. Starting from the physical plane, anthroposophy must begin by speaking about the human senses since it is through them that we know anything at all about that plane. And we will see how vital it is for a true understanding of the human being to begin by studying the senses. Let us take that as our first chapter, then, and ascend from there to contemplate the various spiritual aspects of human nature. When anthroposophists study the human senses, they find themselves trespassing on anthropological ground, Anthroposophy must always start with sense-reality, but must be clear that the spirit works down into it from above. Anthropology limits itself to what can be investigated below and confuses everything. Anthropology views the human senses in a way that misconstrues matters and eliminates what is because it lacks a guiding thread for discovering the corresponding truths properly. Let me read that sentence again. Anthropology views the human senses in a way that misconstrues matters and, elim and eliminates what is, because it lacks a guiding thread for discovering the corresponding truths properly. <clears throat> if no thread exists to act as a guide through factual labyrinths, it is impossible to find the way out. <clears throat> Spiritual research must spin the thread that the legendary Theseus used to guide himself out of the labyrinth of the Minotaur. Ordinary anthropology gets caught there and becomes the Minotaur's victim. We shall see that anthroposophy says something different from the usual outer view. It is interesting to see, however, that contemporary science is forced by the external facts themselves to become more thorough and serious in its observation than it used to be. It is most trivial when speaking of the five senses, touch, smell, taste, sight, and hearing. We shall see that this list of the five senses leads to total confusion. Modern science has, to be sure, recently added three further senses, though it doesn't really know what to do with them. Today we will lay the very first foundations of an anthroposophic science of the senses. We will list the senses that are really meaningful in light of the guiding thread discussed earlier. The first human sense for consideration is the one spiritual science might term the life sense. It is a real sense that may be spoken of just as we speak of the sense of sight. What is it? It is something we are unaware of when everything is as it should be, and we sense it only when things within us are not in order. We feel faintness, for example, and perceive this state as an inner experience 
just as we perceive a color. What comes to awareness as thirst or hunger or as a burst of energy is perceived inwardly, just as a sound or color is. We usually notice such states only when things get out of balance. The first human self-perception is transmitted by the life sense, whereby the human being as a whole becomes aware of his or her bodily nature. The life sense is the first true sense, and it must be taken into account, just as the senses of sight, smell, and hearing are. We cannot understand the senses if we do not recognize that it is possible to sense ourselves inwardly as a whole, to be inwardly aware of ourselves as a self-enclosed living bodily totality. We may become aware of the second sense, which is very different in nature from the life sense, when we move a limb. We would not be human if we could not perceive our own movements. A machine cannot perceive its own motion. This is possible only for a living being, equipped with an actual sense to perceive it. The sense we possess for our own movement, from mere blinking to using our legs, is a real second sense, the self-movement sense. We become aware of a third sense, when we consider that human beings distinguish between up and down. It is very dangerous to lose this faculty, because then we cannot stand, but instead topple over. One of our organs, the ear's three semicircular canals, is involved in this sense. <clears throat> if it is injured, we lose the ability to orient ourselves. Animals also possess this sense. In them it is based on certain organs of balance known as autoliths, tiny pebble-like structures that must be exactly placed, otherwise the animal is likely to stagger. This is the sense of balance, or the static sense. We use the senses described thus far to perceive ourselves, to feel something within. We now move outside the human being to where we begin to interact with the outer world. The first interaction we have with the world consists of taking in external substances and perceiving these substances, a process made possible only when those substances become united with the body. Only substances in a gaseous condition actually belong in this category. Organs of the smell sense absorb them. That is our first interaction with the outer world. Things that do not emit gaseous substances cannot be smelled. Roses must emit gaseous matter for us to smell them. The fourth sense, then, is the sense of smell. <clears throat> the fifth sense arises not simply when we perceive the material substance, but when we take the first step into it and form a deeper relationship with matter. In this sense, excuse me, in this case, the matter must affect us in some way, such as when a watery substance comes into contact with our organs of taste. We do not have a direct perception of the material until the saliva has dissolved it. Here only an interrelationship between the tongue and the substance may be perceived. Things tell us not only what they are as substances, but also how they can affect us. The relationship between the human being and nature thus becomes more intimate. That is the sense of taste, the fifth sense. <clears throat> the sixth sense gives us even more intimate information about the nature of things perceived. We are told more than the taste sense tells us. Here, special conditions have been established so that something can plainly show us what it is. In the case of smell, our bodies take things just as they are. The sense of taste is more complex, allowing substances to reveal more of their inner nature. With the sixth sense, we can discern whether or not an object allows light to shine through. If and how something is colored reveals the particular way it allows light to pass through. An object that allows green light to shine through shows us that its inner nature is such that it can allow this to happen, <clears throat> whereas the sense of smell reveals only the outermost surface of things, the sense of taste communicates something of the inner nature of a substance, the sense of sight, on the other hand, penetrates all the way to a thing's depths, such as the sixth sense, the sense of sight.
The IEYE is a wonderful organ because it can penetrate more deeply into the nature of things than any of the other sense organs discussed so far. In vision we have something special. When, for example, our eyes perceive the red color of the rose, the red surface tells us of the rose's inner nature. We see only the surface, but because that surface depends on the rose's inner nature, we learn to know its inner nature to a certain extent. If we take hold of a piece of ice or hot steel, we penetrate even more deeply into the inner depths of a thing. Color supplies only manifestations of the surface, but ice is cold all the way through, and heat permeates the entire mass of hot metal. Heat and cold thus convey a still deeper knowledge of the inner nature of substances than the sense of sight can, because sight is limited to telling us about surface characteristics. The seventh sense, the sense of warmth, reaches still further into the foundations of things. <coughs> now, let us see what comes of further inquiry and ask whether we can rely on our senses to go even more deeply into these matters. Can we understand their inner nature more precisely than we can through the sense of warmth? Indeed we can, when something expresses its inner nature by beginning to sound forth. Heat is evenly distributed throughout a substance, but that is not true of sound. Sound make, sounds make inner nature vibrate, and this gives us evidence as to a certain inner makeup. The more intimate sense of hearing discerns an object's inner mobility. It affords us more intimate knowledge of the outer world than the sense of warmth. This eighth sense is the sense of hearing. When an object is struck, it reveals its inner nature in the sound produced. We distinguish between things based on their inner nature, according to how they are able to vibrate when we make them sound. In a certain way the soul of things speaks to us. Now are there any senses higher than that of hearing? We must proceed much more cautiously when investigating the higher senses for we must not confuse the senses with something else. In ordinary life, where one remains at ground level and confounds everything, one speaks of yet other senses, such as the sense of imitation, the sense of secrecy, and so on. The term sense is erroneously applied here, however. Sense is that perception through which we obtain knowledge without the help of the mental processes. Where judgment plays a role in acquiring knowledge, the term sense is inappropriate. Sense is a term limited to situations where the power of judgment has not yet become active. We use a sense to perceive a color, but to make a judgment between two colors, no sense is necessary. In this sense, and this is also a misuse of the term, are there any more senses? Yes, there is a ninth sense. We discover it when we think about the fact that there is indeed a certain capacity of perception in the human being. This is a sense which is especially important in laying the groundwork for anthroposophy. There is a perceptive capacity that, although it is not based on judgment, is present in it. We perceive it when we use speech for the purpose of coming to an understanding with others. In what is conveyed to us through speech, there is not simply an expression of judgment. A real speech sense underlies it. This sense of speech is the ninth sense, and it is as real as the sense of sight or smell. <clears throat> a child learns to speak before learning to reason. A whole people has one language, but judgment is a function of the individual. What a sense conveys does not depend on the soul activity of the individual human being. Hearing makes us aware of the inner vibration, but the perception of a speech tone's meaning is more than just hearing. Footnote. Steiner differentiates between the German words ton and laut. Ton is translated as sound, laut as tone or phonetic tone or speech tone. The word tone is not used here primarily in the musical sense, 
but in the sense of feeling tone in language as used by Henry Head in his Aphasia and Kindred Disorders of Speech, Cambridge 1926, cited by Oliver Sacks in his essay on the sense of word, quote this president's speech in the book The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat and Other Clinical Tales. End of footnote. Oh, see also, excuse me, continuing footnote, see also Rudolf Steiner, Anthroposophy, Fragment, Chapter 2. End of footnote. The meaning conveyed by speech is (coughs) is discerned by a sense other than hearing, the sense of speech or language. That is why children speak and understand what is spoken to them long before they learn to reason. Reasoning is actually learned through speech. What an educator the speech sense is, just as sight and hearing also are in early childhood. Nothing that the senses perceive can be changed or distorted. That applies to the perception of color exactly as it does to the perception of the inner nature of speech tones. We must recognize the speech sense as a special sense. It is the ninth in the sequence of senses. And now we come to the tenth sense, the highest among those used in ordinary life. It is our means for understanding concepts expressed through the medium of speech. It, too, is really a sense, just as the others are. We must have concepts to reason. If the soul is to become active, it must be able to perceive concepts, which is possible through the sense of concept. But what about the sense of touch? which seems to have been overlooked entirely. Of course, touch as a sense is usually lumped together with a sense of warmth. This arises from the confusion created by those who lack the guiding spiritual thread. At first glance, touch indeed has significance only as the sense of warmth. The whole skin can be designated roughly as such a sense. It is only in a certain way that Excuse me. It is only, in a certain way, there for the touch sense. <clears throat> but proper observation sees that touching is not only something we do by placing our hands on an object to feel its surface. It also includes seeking something through with our eyes. The senses of both smell and taste can be said to touch. We touch a thing when we sniff it with our sense of smell. All the senses, from the fourth through the seventh, or sense of warmth, have the capacity of touch in common and may be properly placed in the touch-sense category. Only a crude approach, such as that taken by modern physiology, can ascribe to a single sense something that belongs to a whole series of them, in this case the senses of smell, taste, sight, and temperature. Footnote. Rudolf Steiner later recognized the sense of touch as separate from the sense of temperature. See Lecture 8, August 29, 1919, entitled The Foundations of Human Experience, also on this website. End of footnote. (coughs) Hearing cannot be considered a sense of touch, and even less so the sense of speech or language, and less still the sense of concept. These senses may therefore be called senses of comprehension. Whereas, in the sense of touch, we have a sense that stops at the surface of things, unable to penetrate into them, we do penetrate things with a sense of warmth, and continue to penetrate more and more deeply with each further sense. These higher senses allow us to understand and comprehend the inner nature of things, and may thus be called senses of comprehension. In this way, you can see that three senses have to be listed before arriving at the sense of smell. Three senses that inform us concerning our own human inner condition. They obtain their knowledge from our inner condition. The sense of smell then brings us to the boundary between the inner and outer worlds. And the higher senses allow us to penetrate more and more deeply into the outer world. Are there still lower and higher senses? Yes, Those mentioned thus far represent just a partial list. Other senses exist both above and below those we have discussed. We could go on from the sense of comprehension to the first astral sense, and from there to consider the senses for gaining access to spiritual realms. If we were to do that, we would come to an eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth sense. Merely mentioning these unfamiliar senses must be enough for now. More will be said about them tomorrow or the day after, when we will proceed from the physical to the spiritual level. 
They will lead us more deeply into the foundations of spiritual life into which concepts cannot penetrate. Concepts cannot go beyond a certain point. A realm that requires higher senses for exploration lies beyond concepts. The sense of smell stops short of our inner nature. And just as we have three senses below the sense of smell, three senses are also found above the sense of concept. Senses that allow us to penetrate the outer aspect of the spiritual in the same way that the lower three senses delve into external aspects of the physical. We shall limit ourselves today to the physical plane, and this is the reason we are restricting ourselves to the senses for perceiving the physical. A grounding of this sort cannot be dispensed with. Failure to establish such a grounding has created grave confusion in the senses, including philosophy and epistemology. A generalized approach is adopted, asking what we can learn through the separate senses. The difference between the senses of sight and hearing cannot be distinguished. Light waves and sound waves are spoken of in a single breath disregarding the fact that sight penetrates less deeply into the nature of things than does the sense of hearing, which tells us something about the soul nature of the outer world. <clears throat> Through the higher eleventh, twelfth, and thirteenth senses we will penetrate into the spirit of things. Every sense has a different nature and different essential characteristics. We need, above all, to take this into account. We can, therefore, regard a large number of presentations today on the nature of vision and its relationship to the world around us, brought to us by physics, as views that never consider the nature of the senses at all. Countless erroneous conclusions are based on the misconception of the nature of the senses. This has to be emphasized, because popular texts in no way do justice to what has been said here. Indeed, popular books often state the exact opposite. In them you may read statements written by people who haven't the slightest notion of the inner nature of the senses. We must realize that the perspective science takes leave excuse me, we must realize that the perspe perspective science takes leaves it no choice but to speak as it does, that it cannot escape making a mistake, since the course of development has been to largely forget what is correct. The true nature and being of the senses thus constitute the first chapter of Anthroposophy. The end of Lecture 1